All right. Welcome again. I don't know why I said that because I've already said it once, but I'm glad I'm glad to see more people. So that I'm welcoming those that weren't here the first time I said welcome. All right, covered it. It's just perfect. We're going to be in First uh, Peter again this morning in chapter 2. Um, we're going to be looking at um, some instructions for exiles. That's the title, Rich. So you have it. There you go. Uh, last week we talked about the fact that as Christians we are part of something big. Even though we may be exiles and we may be in the minority, we're still incredibly privileged in Christ and we can still make a huge impact in the world through the proclamation of the gospel. So 1 Peter 2.9 ended last week by saying, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so for those of us who have been rescued by Jesus from our fallen and broken condition, we should now go and greatly just proclaim to people how excellent he is in what he's done for us. And so kind of like, do you remember the Samaritan woman? Uh, Jesus and her had this interaction at the well, and he, he kind of confronted her with some things. And, and, and when she met him, she was so excited, she ran back into town and said, come and meet a man who knows everything about me and still wants me to be part of his kingdom. That's kind of how we should be as we go out. We, we, we've met this, he knows us, and he wants us. And now we go to go proclaim that to other people. And, and then we have the church here that, that's described as this holy temple made up of these living stones, that's, that's us, that we're supposed to be like this brilliantly lit city on a hill that is beckoning people to come and live. So the good news is that God has a really high view of us. The not-so-good news is that the world doesn't share that sentiment necessarily. So we have to constantly remind ourselves of who we are in the sight of God so that we can endure who we are in the sight of the world. Peter's going to help us out by giving us these these instructions for exiles. So we're picking things up in verse 10 where we, we left off last week, which says this, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter starts out by establishing once again what God has done for us. He always starts there. You start with who we are in Christ and then you move into what we do from there. So he starts out by explaining we were alienated from him, his enemies, but now he's adopted us into his family so that we are now God's people. We were sinners who owed him a debt that we couldn't pay, and we were sentenced to an eternity without him, but he had mercy on us. And he transferred what we were due onto his one and only precious son. And because of of that, we are now family members. If we place our faith in that, we are now family members of the household of God, and recipients of this unbelievable mercy. And, and so now, because of that, he makes this passionate plea with us in verse 11, where he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. You can hear the, the love in Peter's voice for these Christians, the care and concern he has as he urges them to live in a way that will help them and not harm them. Again, we see him reminding the Christians of their place in this world, which I realize may still be challenging for some of us because the truth is that most of us have lived a lot more like settlers than sojourners for a long time now. I have to admit that that's 
that's kind of what I've done. I've, I've, I've kind of put roots down and, and established myself here and, and, and I like it. And so it, it's kind of a hard thing to wrap your mind around that. No, I'm, I'm actually a sojourner, not a settler. And this is why he reminds us back in verse nine, that before God, we are a chosen race. We are a holy nation. We don't belong here, but we do belong to God. The truth is that we're just passing through on our way home. And, uh, he tells us that since we're exiles, we need to conduct ourselves differently, which makes sense. An exile, if you're, if you're in a strange place around people that don't know you well, you're on your best behavior normally because people, you know, people see you as an outsider. We treat outsiders differently. If you were sitting in your house and you saw some, somebody you've never seen in your neighborhood before kind of walking around your property, uh, you, you kind of would pay attention to that, right? The danger possibly. And, and so you keep a close eye on him. And we even do this in the church. Um, even pastors do it sometimes, especially in a church like ours, who've quite frankly seen some colorful people come through over the years, right? <laughs> I remember once I was sitting in my usual spot over there, minding my own business. Somebody else was preaching that day, so I was just enjoying the word. And then I kind of just glanced over to my, my left and I noticed an older guy sitting there that I'd never seen in church before. And that wouldn't have really bothered me much, except that he had, he had two children's dolls on either side of him and two children's blankets on either side of him. And so I kind of saw that and I'm like, okay, that kind of creeps me out a little bit. But, you know, okay, I won't get all judgy yet. <laughs> a few minutes later, he gets up and leaves. Walks out those two doors back there. But he leaves the dolls. So, so, so naturally I determined the logical thing that these were cleverly crafted explosive devices and uh, I needed to spring into action or we were all going to die. This is where I went in my head. Just the truth. So I went back to that back table where Doug V was sitting to ask him about the Ted Kaczynski guy uh, with the dolls. And he informed me that uh, this, this man was visiting. He had his grandchildren with him who were in the nursery, and he most likely was being a good grandfather and going and checking on them in the nursery. So crisis averted. You're welcome. Right? <laughs> Due to my quick response. Yeah. Um, so I just illustrated two things for you. One, I'm a little touched in the head, which you already kind of knew. That's, that's, the kind of, that's, that's my world. Welcome to my world. That's the kind of things I think and do. Uh, but two, we treat outsiders differently. If that would have been Cy sitting back there with two dolls beside him, I would have thought, that's weird. But it's Cy. It's okay. I know Cy. I love Cy. He loves me. No danger there. Just weirdness. You've never done that and you never will. But Christians should expect that the world is going to look at us differently and treat us differently and not to embrace us as their own because the truth is we are different from them. So Peter gives us two things that will help us greatly if we follow them. One is to keep ourselves from worldly passions. And two is to have honorable conduct. Verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, I got to be honest, when I hear that phrase, my mind goes towards like lust. That's kind of, I've always read that and thought that way. And it actually kind of sounds like kind of a cheesy romance novel title or, or the name of a soap opera. You know, we now return to the passions of the flesh. It's like, oh, my, it just has that like that sounds racy. I get a little flushed even saying it, you know. 
But, and that phrase definitely can refer to that. It can, it can mean that kind of stuff, but it isn't limited to that. And it's helpful when we're studying the Bible to kind of look at how a word is used in other verses so we can get an idea of what it means. And so let's talk about that word passions for a minute. Sometimes it's used in the positive sense, uh, like in Philippians 1.23, where Paul is describing how torn he is between staying here and serving or going home to be with his Lord. And so he says, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire, passion, is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So you see that he's, he's torn. His, his heart is to go there. That's where his passion is. That's what he's most um, excited about. That, that's what he wants to do. In other places, the same word is, is translated as covet, which if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, you know that this is that strong desire to have something that isn't yours. Like you shouldn't covet your neighbor's goods or your neighbor's spouse. So it's just kind of describing the desires of our heart. Being passionate can be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. It just depends on what we're passionate about. Well, in verse 11, it's a bad thing. It's being used to describe um, our old corrupt nature and the desires that, that that nature has. So sometimes the Bible calls that our old nature. Sometimes it's the old man. Sometimes it's called the flesh. It all refers to the same thing. It refers to that person we were before meeting Christ that unfortunately is still hanging around. And in chapter 4, later on in chapter 4 of the same book, Peter's going to give us kind of a list of what some of these these desires are that we're supposed to avoid. And he points out when he does so that that we've lived in those things long enough. And, And, you know, those were the things we did before we knew God. But now that we are his people and no longer belong to this world, we're supposed to leave those things behind. We're supposed to not have any business, you know, taking part in those things any longer in what non-Christians do. So things like partying, getting drunk, sleeping around, loving the world, living for self, those are all things that he mentions in that list. And he says we're to abstain from those things, which means we're supposed to keep our distance from them. Think think like restraining order. That's what he's that's what he's saying right now. A restraining order is put in place to protect a person from further harm. So giving into these old desires and patterns will harm us. And he knows that. So he's saying, no, you need to keep away from these. These are things that war against us. That's quite a picture, isn't it? They war against your soul. And, and I can unfortunately relate to that. I know exactly what he's talking about. There's, there's desires out there that I know are just going to war against me and my new nature. They fight for our affection. They beat us down. They immobilize us, they steal our joy, and they will make us ineffectual if we give in to them. And, and the Greek tense of the verb abstain indicates that we need to keep on abstaining. <laughs> it's like, ah, the war is, is not going to end. We have to keep abstaining, keep abstaining, keep abstaining. The idea is that these are going to be a temptation we're going to have to fight against as long as we're in this body. So now you have to think permanent restraining order, okay? It's, it's, gonna, it's just going to be there for a long time. And, and the funny part of that is it, when we don't distance ourselves from these things, it, it would be kind of like the same, the same thing you would see in an abusive relationship where somebody gets a restraining order because of the harm that's been done, and, and then they, they say, oh, you know what, never mind, and invite that person back into their life, knowing exactly what's going to happen when they do. You know, we've got a, some, some ex-police uh, in here that know, what, you know, why, would, why do people do that? And yet this is what we do. 
It's an abusive relationship we should have no part of. We should, we should keep that restraining order in place. We should never invite that back into our life because we know what's going to happen, and yet we don't. We're flirting with disaster when we do those things. There's a verse in Genesis 4-7 that gives just such a picture of this idea. It says in Genesis 4-7, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to control you, but you must rule over it. John Owen once said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And we need to think of it that way. It's not our friend. It's going to harm us. And the old nature and the new nature are at odds with each other, that this battle will, will continue. They're competing for control. So we need to learn to walk in the spirit and not gratify the desires of our flesh. Giving into these will harm us, uh, and not only us, but they'll actually harm our reputation with the outside world. We need to think about that as well. And that's Peter's going to talk about more, more about that in the next verse. So, so we've got this kind of weird dynamic where we're called to keep our distance from our old desires while living in close proximity with the people of the world who are still doing these things and at times making it look pretty appealing. For being honest, when you see some of those things going on, it's like, well, that that looks nice. It's not nice. Don't be fooled into that. You know where it goes. You know what's going to happen when you go there, but it's appealing to us. So we, we have this tricky course that we need to try to navigate. It's kind of like trying to drive on snowy roads, right? <laughs> you need to stay in your lane, bro. If you don't, if you get into there's slush on the side of the road over there, and if you get into that, what's going to happen next? You're going in the ditch. And, th- and that's what we need to think of with these things. If we let our heart focus on these things, we're going to get pulled in that direction easily. And conversely, the more enamored and the more enveloped we are in the love of our Father, the more we we, we rest in that position and, and focus on that, the less tempted we're going to be to have that love affair with the world. 1 John 2 says it like this. In verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires, that's that word passions again, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And when you just look at those two things, passing away, abiding forever, you know, like really weigh them out. Which one do you want? Do you, do you passing away, abiding forever, short-term, long-term. We need to think long-term is being united with Christ. The best thing that's ever happened to you or is being part of the world. The best thing that's ever happened to you. I mean, it seems like such an easy answer and we know what we would all say, but is that how we live? Is that really functionally how we behave? We act like this place is pretty great sometimes. The world is going to war for your attention and your affection, but it will never love you the way that God loves you. It will only leave you beaten, bruised, and broken. And and I wish I could say that, you know, I learned this from watching other people, but I've learned it from personal experience. I keep thinking, you know what, maybe I'll go back and it won't be that bad this time. Maybe it'll be worth it this time. Maybe it'll be fun. Maybe it'll reward me in some way. And it doesn't. It always just like, <laughs> it just never works out like I want it to. It always ends the same. Pray this prayer. Pray that the world and its passions will lose their luster and that God would be our greatest desire.
I pray that a lot. Change my heart, Lord. Change my affections towards you and away from these things because of this war that's going on in our soul. We need to always pray that way. So we need to find a way to strike the balance between keeping our distance from the things of this world and at the same time engaging with the people that are in this world. And that's hard. And there seem to be like these two extremes that Christians go to when it comes to the world. Isolation and activism. Isolation is where we we build a fortress with a drawbridge and a moat around our lives, around the church. We do this to keep the filth out. (laughs) That's the idea. Keep all that filth and all that evil and all that bad out. Well, there are a few problems with this strategy. The first one is if that were the policy, guess who wouldn't be inside the fortress right now? And if we're being honest, right, the guards wouldn't have let you in. They wouldn't have let me in, right? We'd be outside, you know, looking at the moat or in the moat. That's a problem. The second problem with this is Jesus didn't live this way. This wasn't his approach to sinners and to filth. Thank God it wasn't. He, he found a way to engage with the people of the world, with sinners, without diving into their sin with them. And three, the, the text talks about our conduct among the Gentiles, not away from them, among them. Jesus has defined the world as our mission field. And you can't be a very effective missionary if you're living like in a monastery atop a hill. How's that going to work? I was thinking about it. I thought of a Monty Python skit where you know you just like write little notes and just shoot them out the window with an arrow, hope that they hit somebody. Is that that's that's about all you got? You know, message for you, sir. A, that's where my mind went. Not an effective, not an effective way to go. So isolation really isn't an option for us, uh, or for it's not an option for the obedient Christian, I should say. Now the other extreme we go to in dealing with the world is activism. And what do I mean by activism? Well, Google defines it this way. Activism consists of efforts to promote, impede, direct, or intervene in social, political, economic, or environmental reform with the desire to make changes in society toward a perceived greater good. That's a big definition, but you get the idea. Uh, This is where uh, the Christian becomes all about finding ways to do good things for the people of the world and to try to make the world a better place, which isn't bad in and of itself, depending on what the goal is. What's the end goal of that? For some, the goal is to try to fit into the world so that they'll like us. Maybe if I do enough good, they'll be like, ah, oh, you're cool. Come over here. You know, you can be my friend. It's that kind of idea. We'll, we'll gain acceptance if we, if we do these things. For others, the goal is to try to make heaven on earth, to try to turn this into the promised land. Like, I don't like the way things are here, so I'm going to try to fix it to make it the way I want it to be. Well, there are a few problems with these strategies as well. First, as we're going to see in a minute, if we are abstaining from worldly passions, if we're not diving into the things they dive into and embracing the things they embrace, the world isn't going to like us no matter how much good we do. It's just the truth. And the second problem is trying to turn this world, this world, into heaven on earth is is akin to rearranging the deck furniture on the Titanic, right? The old saying, it's like the, the ship's going down. You can try to make it nice. Like, well, maybe we could, maybe we could do a nice feature wall over there. Now it's all, it's all heading in a direction and it ain't good. And third, it isn't what Jesus came to do. And it's not the mission he left us to do. 
Jesus came to save sinners. That's why he came. That's why he left us here, is to save sinners, to proclaim a gospel that will save. Now, having said all that, there is a need for us to do good in the world. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There is a need for us to do good in the world. Um, And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But the end goal is very different. But understand this, the best thing that we can do for the people of the world is to share what Jesus has done for them. There's no greater thing that we can do for people. If you want to do good in the world, tell them about Jesus. Tell them about a Savior that came to save them from their sin and to take them to his kingdom. That's the best thing we can do with our time, and that's the best thing we can do in the world. And it's the most effective way of changing the world. If you want to see things improve, you know, preach the gospel. That's what will change. You know what changed my heart? It wasn't political reform. It wasn't more education. It wasn't. It was the gospel. That's what changed me. Nothing else changed me. I was a a vile. I mean, my thinking, everything was so just wrong until my heart was transformed. That's what changes people. So we need to figure out a way to engage our culture with the message of salvation without abandoning it and without embracing it which is why Peter emphasizes the role that our conduct plays in this endeavor. In verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, non-Jews, honorable. Gentiles is is a big catch word for like the people of the world sometimes, and that's what he means here. Keep your conduct among them honorable. I mean, just just that that phrase, honorable conduct, when you hear that right now, doesn't it just sound like a foreign thing today? I think of like, that sounds weird. What is that exactly? Honorable conduct? Can you break that down for me? It's just like, that's a weird, the world, I mean, honorable conduct will stand out like a sore thumb today, won't it? It's just not something we see much of anymore. And the Greek word used here for honorable uh, can mean beautiful. Think about that for a minute. Let your conduct be beautiful. Let your lives be beautiful in the world. I like that. I like the sound of that. So what kind of honorable conduct should they see? Well, Peter's actually going to go into this in the next, you know, several sections of of this book. But for our purposes this morning, I'm going to focus on two broad ideas. And that would just be very simply the things that we say and the things that we do. Our talk and our walk. In verse 9, Peter told us that our duty as God's people is to verbally proclaim how excellent he is. And now in verse 12, he's going to tell us that the proclamation, um, we also need to make that same proclamation through the way that we live our lives. So, so there's verbal proclamation and there's visual proclamation. Verbal proclamation is our claim that Jesus is alive and he's transforming lives. And then visual proclamation is the validation of that claim. And both are really important. They have to work in conjunction with each other. Doing only one and not the other kind of creates a mess. And we've all seen this. We've all seen those Christians who say that they follow Christ, but they don't live like they follow Christ. You know what I'm talking about? And it's tragic it's, to think about that. It's so hypocritical to just imagine this person going, I'm a Christian. He's called me out of darkness. He's excellent. And it's like, well, but you're still in the darkness over there. What, what, you know, what does that mean? It's like, no, no, I'm clean. Jesus has made me clean, but you're in the pig slop hanging out there. What, 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 what are we talking? You know, it, it doesn't make any sense. 
I can't tell you how many times we've gone to places. You know, we like to go to places where sinners hang out and engage in conversations, which is fun for us sometimes. Um, but it's also just part of the mission. So we'll go to a place like O'Kane's, which is downtown in Bend, and we'll sit around a fire pit. And we'll be talking and having a great conversation with people. And you'll run into somebody every once in a while that's just foul. I mean, foul. Talking about, you know, the women in the place and using foul language. And then at some point they find out we're pastors. And they'll go, oh, I'm a Christian too. <laughs> and it's like... Wow. It's like, don't tell anybody that, you know, come on, you're not helping us out. It's just like, well, where, and then they'll start saying, yeah, yeah, I go to the church over there and my family, you know, and they start telling you all these things. And it's like, that makes no sense. There's no reason to think that person, we would have never thought he was a Christian. There was no way that the, we would have figured that out. And there's no way, you know, the world will hear you claim that and they'll think, okay, that's what a Christian is, I guess. And then they'll just assume that it's all a bunch of hogwash because it doesn't add up. So so saying you're a Christian without living like a Christian is a problem. And then there's Christians out there who just live exemplary lives, right? Honorable conduct, doing good for people, all of those things, but they never connect the dots back to Christ as the reason. And that's tragic too, because people see this different life being lived and they see this conduct and they think, where does that come from? And you're like, mm, I'm not going to tell you where it comes from. No, you've got to tell them where it comes from. It's not coming from you. It comes from Christ. You've got to connect those dots back there. And this not only applies to individual Christians, but it applies corporately to the church. There are churches today that are proud to verbally proclaim that they are Christians. We are the superior righteous Christians, that, but they don't have any good works to back that claim up. They just are all talk. And then there are churches today that are more than happy to leave out the verbal proclamation altogether. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about the gospel. Don't talk about any of that kind of stuff. Let's just do good and hope they figure it out. That's the strategy of a lot of churches right now. You've got to find a way to, to get both of those things together, right? The chocolate and the peanut butter. They come together. It's better that way. Hearing the beautiful message and seeing the beauty lived out is a powerful witness that Christ is really among us. So you see how the verbal proclamation gets validated by the visual proclamation and vice versa. And this is why doing life together, which is that little phrase we use, doing life together, is so important. Because seeing the conduct of one person is kind of, you could say, oh, that's an anomaly. You know, Every once in a while you'll, you'll, you'll run into something unique. But seeing the conduct of a, a whole gaggle of people all together, that's, that's powerful. It's kind of like, um, it's hard to write that off. It's kind of like, have you ever been to a candlelight service? Right? What, what makes that so beautiful and powerful? If they handed one candle out and said, you stand in the middle and hold that up, it just wouldn't be that impressive, would it? Kind of silly, right? But when they all get lit and they all are held up together and you see this room full of these lights, it does something in you. It's just beautiful. That's what we're talking about here. The door wants to be a church like this, where we get both the verbal proclamation and the visual proclamation working together. And so if you've been here long, you know that every week we, we try to proclaim the gospel. And we encourage you to do the same thing. We want everybody to go out and tell people about Jesus, who he is and what he's done for them. That's the verbal proclamation. The, the, the visual proclamation comes with a lot of the ministries that we're involved in. And, and so stuff like the, the free food market, the warming center that we're hoping to get started up again in Lapine soon, um, mops, the, all of these things. Like these are good things to do in the community, 
But they, again, you've got to make sure that they connect back to the gospel. We always have to find ways to make sure that that is clear. Otherwise, it's just activism. So this section kind of ends with a bittersweet reality. In verse 12, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The idea is that our neighbors uh, who look at us and, and, you know, they're going to look at us as somebody who doesn't belong. They're going to probably have prejudice against us. They're, they're probably not going to like us. But when they see how we live, the good that we do, maybe it'll change that. Maybe it'll swing that around a little bit. And maybe, just maybe, it will draw them to Christ. That's the hope. But don't be surprised that even when our conduct is honorable and beautiful and, and we benefit society with what we do, the world might still not like us and they might still call us evildoers. That's kind of harsh to hear, isn't it? You know who else they called an evildoer? Jesus. I mean, think about all the good he did. Think about, I mean, over and over and over. He just went around doing good to people, healing people, loving people, and they called him an evildoer. So, so we, we can't be surprised when that happens to us. Even though they may accuse us of evil, one day they're going to stand before God and everything is going to get sorted out. It's called He calls it the day of visitation, which is really um, inspection day. That's what that word means. <laughs> it's kind of funny to think about. God's going to come back at some point and, and it's going to be inspection day. And at that point, he's going to be glorified. People are going to say, even if they called us evil, um, the good that he has done in his church and in his people and in this world is all going to resound to his glory and, and it will be made right. But until that time, we need to do what it says in Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. That's, that's the goal of the Christian and of the church in this world. Kind of a helpful way to sum all of this up as far as what Peter's been urging us to do. Uh, sometimes if we think of it from a different perspective, it can help. And I couldn't help but think about Glenn this week getting ready to go back to Africa. And, you know, here he is getting ready to go to a place that's different, with different people, different culture, different language, all of these things. How would you mentally prepare for that, spiritually prepare for that? And so I'm going to ask you to put on your, you know, your imaginary caps. We're going to, like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, when the little trolley would come, we're going to go to make-believe neighborhood now. Uh, I want you to imagine. <laughs> come on, Dave, that was good. You thought about it, King Friday, come on. <laughs> I want you to just imagine for a minute that you're a missionary. You, you've signed the papers. You've agreed to go. You're going to go to a, a strange place that you've never been before around people that you know nothing about. Uh, what's that going to be like? Imagine that. Your bags are packed. You're getting on the plane. You get off the plane. You're walking out into that world. It's kind of scary to think about, isn't it? <laughs> what's, what, what, what are you going to do to ready yourself? First, you're going to accept and understand that you're going to be seen as an outsider there. There's nothing you can do about it. Just the reality of it. You're going to prepare yourself for difficulties. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be an easy road at all. That's just going to be normal. You're going to have kind of a sense of desperation. You're going to be relying on God through his Holy Spirit and prayer constantly because you're going to need that desperately. You're also going to have a clear kind of understanding of why you're there and what your job is. Single-mindedness. 
um, purpose, focus. You're going to live light. You're not going to, you're not going to uh, carry a bunch of stuff. You're not going to bring everything you own with you. You're going to just live light what you need, not get entangled or put roots down there. Cause you know, you're just there for a time. You're going to conduct yourself honorably there because you're an outsider and you know the importance of that. If you want to reach these people, you know you have to be on your best behavior because you're already kind of fighting an uphill battle. You're also going to learn the language. You're going to learn the culture. You're going to learn the customs. Because if you don't, you're going to be in trouble, right? You know, there's some places where a right-hand shake is super offensive. I would never know that, but you got to know those kinds of things, right? So you're going to find those things out. You're also going to study their beliefs, their worldviews, their religions. You're going to find out as much about that culture and those people as you can so that you know how to engage them properly. And that means you're also going to spend a lot of time studying God's word in light of that so you know how to engage and answer their questions and, and, and almost, you know, um, well, anyway. The other big thing that you're going to do as you're there is you're going to learn to love those people. You're going to learn to have, you're going to have compassion for them. You can't be a good missionary in a foreign place if you don't love the people. So you're going to love them and have compassion for them. And if you're really, really invested, you're going to find and train up your replacement so that that work can continue on. This is the life of a missionary. Can you imagine that? Well, <laughs> it also ha- I just I just snuck one in on you because it also happens to be the life of a Christian. So it's the same thing. If you didn't know it until now, congratulations, you're a missionary. It's like, you're welcome. That's what we've been called here to do. That All of that stuff is stuff we're supposed to be doing as his people, which is exciting to think about. I'm excited for, for Glenn right now. I'm thinking about, you know, the challenges, but the adventures. He's being used of God right now. And those people, as you described that, these people that have missed him and are desperate for words of life, and he gets to be the guy that goes and does that. I'm a little jealous. We get to do that here and now. And the time is short. So let's be about that beautiful, honorable conduct in the lives around us. Uh, Father, thank you so much for, for these passages that, that are there for our good. They're not there to keep us from something or to harm us. They're there to help us and, and to, to protect us, Lord. So uh, help us to be people that really care about honorable conduct, about um, living as lights in this world, to abstain, Lord, to keep away from the stuff that we know is not going to be good for us. And, uh, Lord, we need your, your strength, your help, your Holy Spirit to do this effectively. And so we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be upon our church here and in the Pine and that, that, uh, that the, the message of Christ, his goodness, Lord, and, and what he's done for sinners would go out in power and change lives. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.